Great. Well, welcome to Palm Sunday. As we read earlier in the service, and uh, as you saw in some of the graphics, this is indeed Palm Sunday, the day on the calendar where we annually remember and focus upon that time when Jesus entered into Jerusalem as uh, kind of the first step that kicked off the final days of his earthly ministry, the, these final seven days. Sometimes we refer to that as the Passion Week of Jesus. And we've been looking at that Passion Week over the past few weeks where we take sort of uh, one day from that week and, and unpack it each Sunday. And through doing so, we're looking at some of the most profound teachings and some of the best examples of love that Jesus demonstrated throughout his entire ministry. Now, as we read earlier in the service, on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey. And as he, as he was approaching the city, the crowd started to gather around. And they saw him coming, and they, they took off their cloaks from their back. And they, they placed them on the ground. And some people would, would cut branches off of palm trees and lay those on the ground. Others would hang on to them and wave them as he neared the city. And as he got closer, people from the, from the multitude that had gathered, some would start walking ahead of him and some walking behind him, forming this, this royal procession as he approached the city gates. And as they crossed through into the city, they were, they were shouting in this parade. And they, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now the word Hosanna, you've probably heard that word before if you've been around church for any time because we focus on it in particular at Palm Sunday. Sometimes it's actually only on Palm Sunday because the only place you'll find that word in the Bible is in the gospel accounts of Jesus entering the city. And what this word means is, save us, we pray. So as the people were entering the city with Jesus, what they were saying was, save us, we pray. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, we pray in the highest heaven. And what it is, is it's an expression of joy and in praise of the anticipated deliverance. It's praise of an anticipated deliverance, which would have come easy to the lips of the people that day because so many of them saw Jesus as the anointed one from the house of David, which is where the prophets had said their Messiah, their, their deliverer, the one who would bring them victory and liberation. The prophets had said that's where he would come from. But the events of this week that would start to unfold from Palm Sunday through the rest of the days that we've been walking through in our series the events of that week would change the world forever, and it would change everyone forever as well. Because so many of these people, just a few days later, would be crying something else. They would be shouting out, crucify him instead. Now if we fast forward a couple of days, past Palm Sunday, we find ourselves on Thursday. Which is where we pick up our sermon series today, on Thursday. And this is the eve of when Jesus will be arrested of when he will be falsely accused, tried, sentenced, and then brutally nailed to a cross. So we're on the eve of all of that taking place, which we start to remember on Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. And, and as Ryan had mentioned, we encourage you to invite people to come and join us for learning and remembering those very important days in the Christian calendar. Now here's the amazing thing about Thursday evening. The scriptures make it pretty clear to us that Jesus knows what is about to happen to him. He's very clear that, that there are events that are very dis- that will distraught, be, make him feel distraught, that are about to happen to him. But his thoughts are not upon himself. Instead, they are with his closest followers. You see, the full weight of the cross is starting to descend upon him. But rather than thinking of himself, his attention 
And the longing of his heart is actually upon these 12 men. These 12 men who form the closest community around him in his final hours. Now, as I try to understand that situation, as I try to find a comparison to perhaps what Jesus was feeling and why would he have a focus and his attention towards those things, the, the closest thing I could come up with, an example we could relate to, is, is a paternal love. The, the love that a father or a mother has for their child, which quite often is a self-sacrificing type of love. It, it's a type of love that, that puts the needs of the child first. And those of us who look back perhaps on our childhood or those of us who are parents or grandparents can kind of get a bit of a glimpse of, of what's happening here. You can probably think of examples, a multitude of examples from your own life where you yourself or your parents went without or sacrificed their feelings or their, their needs so that a child could have something that they needed. You know, and as I pondered that, I, I recalled a story from, from my own life. It was back about two decades ago when uh, when Nadine and I, our daughter, Kaylina, was about two or three years old. Now, we lived in Prince George at the time, and, and so we came to Edmonton for a family vacation. And we thought, hey, well, we'll head to West Edmonton Mall, because that's where you go when you're a visitor to Edmonton, which is part of the reason I don't go to the mall, because there's a lot of visitors there, just rubbernecking and getting in the way, right? But, so we go there as a visitor, and, and we're thinking, well, we can go do some shopping, we can go to Galaxy Land, we can go see the dolphins. Remember, they used to have dolphins? Yeah, we can go see those types of things. So we did all of that. And then we thought, you know what? There's a skating rink here. Let's go skating. And so I'm, I'm 20 years younger at this point. And, and I'm thinking, I haven't skated for a while, but I was a pretty good skater in my teens. So this is a good idea. Now, if I'm totally honest with you now, I wouldn't be back then. But if I'm honest with you now, part of the reason I wanted to go skating is because I could show off, right? I can show off for my wife and my, and my young daughter. So we rent our skates and we get out on the ice. Now, Nadine's not a strong skater, and Kaylina was only like two or three, so she hadn't had much of a chance to learn to skate yet. So they're, they're kind of holding on to the boards as they skate around, but not me. I'm off on my own, just whipping around that rink. I'm going forwards, I'm going backwards, I'm doing my crossovers. But after a while, I realized that as fun as this is going fast, I should probably slow down, and I should probably go and, and skate with my family for a little bit. So I do. So I, I, I find Nadine, and, and I, I grab Nadine's hand, and I pick up Kayleen in my arms, and it's like one of the romantic movies now. So I have my daughter and my wife, and we're just slowly kind of skating around, which is fine for a while. But remember, I'm in my 20s, and so I have a need, and it's a need for speed. And so, so, so I let go of Nadine's hand, and I figure, you know who would like to go fast is my daughter, Right? And she's a little scared, but that means she's having fun. So, <laughs> so off we go around the rink again as fast as I can, weaving through people going around. But then I get a little tired. So I think, well, it's time to stop. And so as I go to stop, I dig in my blades, and all my speed and momentum starts heading towards the ground because I've caught an edge, and now I'm falling. So as I'm falling to the ground, I'm thinking, you know, if I do nothing, I'm going to fall on my daughter. And it's probably a bad idea to use a three-year-old to break your fall. So, so in that moment, with cat-like reflexes, I, I spun around so that I hit the ground first, and my daughter lands on top of me. A little uncertain at first of what happened, but then she smiles, and she's all, okay. And then a dean came up, and she was pretty mad. But, <laughs> and I was extremely embarrassed that this had happened. Now, what I didn't say right away was how much pain I had in my elbow. 
because I had actually landed right on my elbow. And it wasn't for about an hour later until I told Nadine about the pain in my elbow, which sent us to the emergency room where I actually ended up having a broken elbow. That, that's told part of our day and part of our trip from that point on. But here's the question. Why did I sacrifice myself? Why was I willing in that moment, without even really thinking about it, to, to endure the pain of the fall so that my daughter wouldn't have to? Why was I willing to do that? Was it out of a sense of duty? Well, that's just what you're supposed to do. Well, to some extent, there probably was a degree of that. But I think the real answer, the, the deeper, truer answer, was I did it out of love. Because I love my daughter. And out of love, I sought to save her from pain that was within my power to prevent her from experiencing. And I think there's no greater love and no greater example in exactly that than Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself for us to give us the potential of avoiding and removing the pain that was within his power to prevent us from having to endure. And this is the love of Jesus Christ that right to the very end, to the final days, the final hours of his life on this Thursday evening, he means to not only give us access to, but to demonstrate before us and in particular before these 12 men who are gathered here with him that night. Now in the passage we're going to have a look at here today, which is found in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there as we go through this passage together. We see that this Jesus Christ, who has just entered Jerusalem, being earlier hailed as king, would again reveal himself to be a servant to all. And as he reveals himself as a servant to all, he shows what it means for us to follow in the footsteps of a servant king. Now as you turn to that passage... In John 13, we find Jesus in this setting. It's him and his closest followers. They're in an upper room that they've borrowed, and they're about to share a Passover meal together. And in the short opening verse that we find in John 13, we encounter the full reality of what Jesus is facing. We encounter a reality that he is aware of, but is at this point still unknown to his disciples. Where it says that Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go up to the Father. But having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, for a change, it's just the 13 of them. It's just Jesus and his followers. There, there are no crowds. There are no Pharisees. There, there's nobody trying to trick him or trying to make him stumble. It's just him and his closest followers. These are the men that Jesus had spent so much time together. They, they had witnessed his miracles. They had walked every step of the journey with him. They had heard all of his teachings. They had spent times, I imagine, in the evenings around a campfire at times just sharing personally in that kind of one-on-one type of mentoring and discipling that would go on. These are the men who were closest to Jesus. And they were his own, it says. They were the ones who were given to him to train up and to guide. They knew each other better than anybody else on the face of this earth. But they were going to be staying on this earth. They were going to be staying in the world. And Jesus was concerned for them because he knew that he was going back to the Father, but yet they were going to be staying behind. And and he knew it was not going to be easy for them. And he loved them. He loved them till the end. And so while there is still opportunity, he was going to demonstrate what that love looked like. But this is not just a time of fellowship and not just a time of shared meal. It's also an opportunity for them to rest, for them to 
recharge their batteries, if you will, perhaps for the final time. Because remember, Jesus is fully God. So he knows what things are about to happen, but he's also fully human. And he knows that these things that are about to happen are going to take a huge toll on him. And so he's with these men closest to him, sharing with them, showing his devotion to them and them to him, and recharging the batteries for the road that is ahead. And so as they sit around this table and they share this meal, at some point during the meal, Jesus gets up and he walks off to the side. And, and he, starts to, he starts to take off his clothes. And he wraps a towel around his waist. And, and after that, he grabs a basin and he grabs a jug of water. And, and he walks back to where the disciples are eating dinner. And he kneels down before them and he starts washing their feet. Then he uses the towel around his waist to dry their feet after he washes them. Now, now imagine that you're sitting there, and, and maybe you're sitting there talking to, I, I don't know, like, like Bartholomew or something like that, one of the least known disciples. We don't hear too much about Bartholomew, so maybe you're sitting beside Bartholomew today, and, and, and he's complaining that, you know, nobody ever pays attention to me. You know, I'm one of the disciples too. Everyone talks about Peter, and you know, but, but it feels like people forget that I even exist. No one's going to write anything about me. You know, so he's going on about this stuff. You're trying to comfort him. And, and then as this is happening, Jesus stands up in the middle of dinner, and, and you don't really think much of it at first, but, but then he starts taking his clothes off, right down, right down to his underwear, essentially. And then as he comes back with, with that jug in the water, he kneels before you and starts washing your feet. Now, in the ancient, Eastern Near, in the, uh, ancient Near East, foot washing was a common activity. Now, they didn't have socks, they didn't have shoes, they, they didn't have any city bylaws against picking up after your camels and things like that. And so when you entered a guest's home, you may have had a bath at some point during the day, but by the time you got to a guest's home or by the time you got to where you're having your meal, your, your feet were dirty. And so it was common practice that when you entered a home, um, the, the owner of that home would have a servant come wash your feet. Now, this was a common practice, but it was slaves who washed feet. It was certainly not the master or the owner of the home who would do that. So, like, imagine if you walked into work tomorrow and your boss kneels down and starts washing your feet as you come in. Or if you walk into your classroom at school and your teacher kneels down and starts shining your shoes. Or if you were fortunate enough to even have an audience with Queen Elizabeth and as you come around the corner, she's sweeping the floor. Like, I would hope that none of these tasks are above and beyond the person, but I think we would all agree that the action in the appearance of that is countercultural. It's just not what we would expect to see happen with a person of that position. And so when Jesus gets to Peter's feet, Peter takes the opportunity to point out how troubling and really unconventional this act is that Jesus is doing. And so as Jesus gets to Peter's feet, Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus responds to him by saying, I know you don't understand. I I know you don't realize what I'm doing. But later on you will. Now, in a, in a Peter-style outburst that he's famous for, he says, no, by no means will you do this. In the original language, there's actually like a double negative in there. And when we find a double negative, it means he is saying, no way, no how, under no circumstances will you ever be allowed to kneel before me and touch the filth of my feet, is what he says to Jesus. But he receives a curious response back from Jesus because he actually receives what amount to kind of an ultimatum. Where Jesus says, well, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
Well, now faced with this potential of being removed from fellowship with Jesus, Peter does this pendulum swing from you must never wash my feet to the other side where he says, well, well, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And then Jesus responds with this very profound, but a little bit cryptic statement that he says. He says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is already clean. At this point, Peter and the others can really only see the physical side of foot washing. They can't see the deeper meaning of what's taking place here. You see, Jesus isn't afraid to touch the filth of their feet and to remove that filth off their feet, which points to to a greater cleansing then in his words. When he says it's not just the filth and the dirt off their feet that he wants to wash away, but he wants to be rid of all of that filth upon our hearts and our lives and our souls that separate us from God. You see, washing the soles of our feet with soap and water can be refreshing, but Jesus wants to wash our inner souls as well. And that's the bath that he's referring to here. He's speaking of this bath that will be prepared by Christ's atoning work upon the cross. A bath that will be prepared by, by the blood that he will shed that will has the power to cleanse us from all of the wrongs, all of the sinfulness, all of the wickedness, all of the unjust actions that we have allowed ourselves to enter into. Because that's one thing that we all share in common. It doesn't matter if, if this is your first time in the church or if you've been on this journey your entire life. All of us share that one thing in common is that we have sinned. All of us have wronged God and we've wronged one another. All of us have fallen short of God's high standard. We all share that in common. And because of that, we all share the need to be cleansed by Jesus Christ. You see, our actions and our bodies have written checks that that we can't cash. But Jesus paid the price and covered the cost. And it's because of this that we can have that relationship with God. As this act of the greatest demonstration of love that is ever known that was done for you. And later on, John would write about this and he would summarize it in a letter he wrote when he simply summarized these actions of Jesus and the fact that it was done out of love by saying this. He said, this is how God showed his love among you. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's the act of love that Christ has completed for us that we will fully celebrate in this coming weekend. But all that remains for each of us at some point on our journey with him is is to take hold of this gift, to, to accept it and claim it as ourselves. And when we do that, we become cleansed. We become forgiven of all of our sins. We find freedom from that bondage. We no longer have to live in the sin and the guilt and the shame that comes with it because Scripture tells us that who the Son sets free is free in completeness and entirety indeed. And so once we've accepted this gift that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, we are cleansed eternally. But as we still walk through this world, even though we have modern conveniences of running water and footwear and city infrastructure, even though we walk through this world, we still tend to pick up a lot of filth upon our lives. Some by choice, others just by fact that we live within this world. 
And this is found through things such as the temptations that we wrestle with. That when we fall to temptation, we feel that sense of dirtiness. When we, when we succumb to temptation, we can feel soiled. That these parts of our lives we don't want to reveal to other people. We also wrestle with habits that we use to alleviate some of the stress and some of the sadness and the pain of parts of our lives. And when we engage in these types of things, it, it doesn't release the burden for very long because when it comes back, it actually adds to the burden. And even some of the places we go where we don't even necessarily choose to voluntarily enter into it, it just kind of hits us out of nowhere. Some of you might be able to understand what I mean when, when I go to an Oilers game or a football game or something, and I'm sitting there enjoying the sports activity, and, and I just happen to get a ticket that's on a seat right in front of a foul-mouthed fan behind me. And on one hand, you want to go, well, that's his business, not mine. But with every single word, you can just feel the weight of it hitting your soul. Each of these things and so many others leave these stains upon our self-image and they can tarnish our spirits. and leaves us in the sense of needing to be refreshed. That we need to be refreshed. But here's the thing about foot washing. This, this foot washing act that brings refreshment is, is that it's, it's not a do-it-yourself kind of job. Even if you're still able to touch your toes and you could physically wash your own feet, doesn't it just feel better when somebody else does it for you? Doesn't it? Now, you can go pay money for that at a, at a salon and get a pedicure. You can, you, if you have a long wait at an airport, you can pay for a foot massage at one of those booths. But when a stranger does it, it's just not the same as when somebody who loves you does it. Like, like compare a you know, a pedicure at a salon versus you come home after a long, hard day and your feet are just pounding and throbbing because you've been on them all day. You slip those shoes off and you, you put your feet up and then your spouse comes over and just starts rubbing the soles of your feet. That's a regular occurrence, isn't it? Isn't it, Nadine? No, right? Luke took about nine couples to marriage conference this weekend. This is some good marriage stuff right here, okay? You didn't need to go to Banff. Just starts rubbing that. You know, you can just feel that stress melt away, right? Like it just feels so much better when somebody else does it, especially when it's somebody who loves you. Now, it's not just me saying that this is a good thing. Because actually, Jesus says it as well. Because after he washes the disciples' feet, then he goes back and he gets dressed again. He returns back to the table and sits down. And he knows there's confusion. And he wants to explain the confusion from what these guys have just experienced. So he says to them, he says, now that I have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. He says, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you that there is no servant who is greater than his master. You see, Jesus would soon be gone. Hours. And Jesus will be gone. And these men would have to take that mantle of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, and carry it into the world. And as they go, he knows that they're going to face rejection and hardship, that they're going to experience poverty, they're going to be persecuted. He knows that they're going to have to endure the loss of loved ones. That men in this very room that he's looking at will be killed for the sake of the gospel. And those who are left behind will have to bear that with them as well. They will face the hardship of enemies. They will face separation from the loved ones. They will be imprisoned for a time. And he knows that based upon what the road ahead of them looks like, if they are left on their own, it will be extremely difficult for them to have not only success, but any sense of, of joy in, in the midst of it. But when they are united with Christ, 
And when they're united with one another, they will have greater hope and a greater sense of encouragement and motivation to press on towards that success of the gospel. And so he wants them to bear their burdens with one another. He wants them to comfort one another, to correct and challenge each other, and to be a source of protection for one another. Which are different words, but all practical examples of showing care and unity within that fellowship, within that body. Symbolically saying, he wants them to wash one another's feet. He wants them to offer that refreshment for their souls. He has provided the eternal cleansing through the bath that will be achieved at the cross that he is about to go to. He says, after that, after that has been accomplished and has been received by each of you, as you then go walk through this world and pick up filth by the calling that I've placed upon you, as you pick up filth by the nature of walking through this world, come together with one another to wash each other's feet. And that command stands for us here today as well. That we as brothers and sisters of Christ who have been eternally cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ still need to go forward into this world. And if we're going to go it alone, it will be lonely. It will lead to struggle and it will be burdensome. But the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. It was never meant to be done in isolation. It was always meant to be done in community. To be done together with a sense of unity within a body so that we could share in the problems, that we could divide the work, that we could be cheerleaders to one another, that we could carry a person when they are down, that they could be a shoulder to cry on, or we could take their hand and help them walk for a while, that we could correct them when they are off track. These are all some, again, some practical ways in which we have the opportunity to have our feet washed. But not only do we have to have our feet washed, but there's another call in here, which is for us to look around for people that we can wash their feet. I'm going to bet that's something you've never said before. You've probably never said that phrase, where are some feet I can wash? (laughs) It's not something we go looking for in that sense. Where are some feet I can wash? As we look throughout this church, as we look throughout our homes, even as we look throughout our community, are there any feet I can wash out there? And in reality, we say it different ways, though. We don't say that phrase, but we say different things. We might say things like, where can I serve? Where can I teach? Where can I welcome or mentor? Where can I pray or cook or encourage? How can I get into somebody's life to offer that support, encouragement, and offer them that refreshment that they may need for their souls? See, the point Jesus is making is that for all followers, that for all people who have accepted that cleansing bath that he offers, that we would come to see and be willing to understand and take action in any task, no matter how menial it may seem. Now, there are seasons in which we will find ourselves struggling where it is actually appropriate for us to step back and be served rather than to serve. There are seasons where that will happen, and we should not be embarrassed or ashamed of those because there is a multitude of people around us who stand ready to say, can I wash your feet? And if we are in a season such as that, allow the people in this community to wash your feet for you. But aside from that, if we are not in a situation such as that, whether you are new to the church or new to the faith, or if this has been a lifelong journey for you, until your final breath or until Jesus returns, we never cease to have purpose. And we never cease to have an opportunity to serve within the body of believers. We never, have, we never cease to have opportunity to wash somebody else's feet as we walk in the footsteps of our servant king. 
who to the very end demonstrated this love and this act of service to those who were closest to him and gave us this final demonstration of love for us. And again, John would write later on, I think in part reflecting back upon this very night, as he says these words in 1 John chapter 4. He said, we love, we serve, we wash, we do all of these things because he first did it for us. He first loved us and demonstrated love for us. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. That's the command that he has given us in the Gospels and in the Epistles. And when I read this, it reminds me that the more we grow in Christian maturity, the more we grow in our, in our understanding, in our realization of, of, of this word of sanctification and things like that, the more we grow in Christian maturity, the more we should be growing in our desire to serve, not backing away from it, actually growing in our desire to serve all the more as we grow in Christian maturity. Not because we get more comfortable with the church, not because we get more comfortable with the people or the church systems, but because as we grow in our Christian maturity, we continue to grow in our understanding, but also our experience of God's love for us. And I honestly believe that as we come to deeper experiences and as we come to a deeper understanding of God's love and grace and service to us, that it will spur us on to greater deeds and to greater service of other people. Now, there's one final point I just need to make before we close today. And it's related to a, to a rebuttal that I often receive about these types of things. At times when I will talk one-on-one with people or talk to a group about the need to serve or to, to wash another person's feet, they'll simply say, I can't. You know, I've been hurt. I've been betrayed. I've been wounded. How can you expect me to ever trust or love somebody ever again? Now, first of all, let me say that I understand this rebuttal. And there was a time in my own ministry when even I uttered those words myself. And so I have lived a season that went through that exact same situation. But there are two things that helped me to get beyond that. Number one, I can testify that God saw my pain in the midst of that situation. That he heard my cry of anger, he heard my cries of sadness. And even with the ugly words that I used at some times in those moments, he received them and he was able to redeem them. And I can tell you that when we allow God to enter into those situations, when we openly and honestly share with him what our hearts are saying, that even if it feels just just ugly, he can receive it and he can redeem it. And I can testify to the healing power of God's grace and forgiveness within my own life and within my own soul. But here's the second thing. I came to understand that Jesus understands this personally and explicitly himself. And he also set the example for us to follow in this. He set the example of how we should love, how we should serve, even how we should wash the feet of those people that we really struggle with. See, Jesus knew all that was about to take place. He knew what the hours ahead of him looked like, and yet he still chose to adopt the role of a servant. And as a servant, he stripped himself bare. He grabbed water, and he knelt before his disciples washing their feet, including the feet of Judas. The man that he knew in mere hours would walk out that door with clean feet and go betray him. In full awareness, he knelt before Judas and washed his feet. Did you ever think about that? You see, if we're to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, this is the example he sets for us. 
And that's why we say this, this example of love and grace, there is no better example for us to follow that has been set for us. And as we experience that in our own lives, I truly pray and hope that it will, it will not just be experienced and then retained, but lived out amongst us in community here and beyond the walls of this church as well. In the last six months and so that I've had the opportunity and privilege to be your pastor, I have witnessed examples and people who have loved and washed the feet of one another. It has been a great joy to watch those things and to hear those stories. I have absolutely seen multiple opportunities to to witness that. And I want to encourage us to continue in those acts and to continue having having eyes that see even more opportunities on a regular basis, to to learn new definitions of what would it look like to enter into someone's life to be of service to them in that fashion. That we would see no task is too simple or too menial when it is done in the name of Jesus Christ for one who is in need of of fresh experience with him. So as the worship team comes back up on the platform, I want to leave you and close with these words that come from Jesus himself in verse 17 of this passage where he says this. He says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you go do them. You'll be blessed if you go do them. So may we love one another here in this church and beyond. May we serve one another humbly as an outpouring of Christ's love in our own lives. See, he is our Savior who loved us enough to die a humiliating, painful death upon a cross in order to provide a way that we would be able to have a relationship with God. Therefore, As we walk in the footsteps of our servant king, may we lovingly serve and be served within the community of believers so that the world would see, that the world would know our good deeds, not to point glory back to us, but to point glory to the Father in heaven.